Welcome to Series 2 of the Saltwater Strategist, the podcast that delves into the complex world of maritime security in the Indo-Pacific region. I'm your host, Jen Parker. As the world becomes increasingly dependent on maritime trade, it's critical that we understand the challenges and opportunities in this competitive environment. Our well-respected guests, strategists, academics, international relations and maritime professionals from across the region provide insightful and considered discussion on the most pressing maritime issues in the Indo-Pacific. The Saltwater Strategist is a product of the Australian Naval Institute, a non-profit self-supporting organisation that encourages the promotion and advancement of knowledge related to the maritime profession. This episode of the Saltwater Strategist is proudly brought to you by Adroita. The DSR makes it clear that the US uh, itself isn't a unipolar power anymore. Coupled with, you know, rising China, this is the reality that Australia needs to really grapple with. Today, we are pleased to have Dr. Beck Strading with us to discuss the impacts of the recently released Defence Strategic Review on the maritime domain. Dr. Strading is a prominent figure in the field of Australian foreign and defence policy and maritime disputes in Asia. She earned a PhD from Monash University in 2013 and has since become a prolific writer, having authored a number of books. Her most recent book, Defending the Maritime Rules-Based Order, was published in 2020, and she has another book coming up with Joanne Wallace to be released this year entitled Girt by Sea, Reimagining Australia's National Security. Dr. Strading is a non-visiting fellow of the Royal Australian Navy Sea Power Centre, a member of the East-West Centre Council on Indo-Pacific Relations, and an incoming chair of the Women in International Security Australia Steering Committee. We are delighted to have Beck join us today to unpack what the DSR means for the maritime domain. Beck, it's great to have you here today on the Saltwater Strategist. Uh, thanks so much, Jen, for having me. So, Beck, delving into it, uh, obviously last week Australia's Defence Strategic Review was released. It's being referred to by many commentators, and I think it's even in the document, that it's the most significant review of defence strategy in quite some time. Can you talk us through what you think the drivers are that led to this review and your thoughts on its significance? Well, it is interesting that you point out that the uh, significant review was stated in the defence strategy itself, but I think the um, simple answer to the first question around uh, what were the motivations for the DSR, the simple answer is China. I mean, I think what we're seeing is Australia grappling with a very different strategic environment, a very different balance of power in the region and this, uh, you know, strategic competition between uh, its main security guarantor, the United States, uh, and its major trade partner, China. So this is a much less favourable strategic environment for Australia and the DSR carries uh, a lot of warnings around that strategic environment. So, for example, it talks about the loss of warning time. So, this idea that we're not going to have uh, a warning time for great power conflict in the region. But there's also that sense in which the, the DSR makes it clear that the US uh, itself isn't a unipolar power anymore. And so this is the reality uh, with rising China, coupled with, you know, rising China, this is the reality that Australia needs to, to really grapple with. And the other part of the, the reason why the DSR comes out now is that 
there are political motivations. You know, this was commissioned to be written uh, in the first 100 days of government. Uh, This is about a new government uh, wanting to put its stamp on defence policy. I think the new Albanese government wants to be seen to be taking defence seriously because this has been sometimes cast as a a political weakness for the Labor Party. Uh, So the the motivations for the Defence Strategic Review are really about the ADF, is it fit for purpose? Like given these transformations in Australia's uh, environment, uh, in, in the region, uh, is the ADF, its structure, its purpose, uh, is it equipped to deal uh, with these significant challenges and changes? But I think, you know, that second question about uh, my thoughts on its significance, I mean, it really needs to be interpreted in the context of other white papers and defence strategic, um, you know, uh, strategic updates that have been released. Uh, there's no shortage of declaratory policy out there that has been released, um, you know, since over the last 10 years or so uh, that I think cumulatively demonstrate uh, this kind of increasing concern around Australia's security environment, particularly those issues around what a rising China means for Australia's uh, security. So, you know, in some ways, yes, it is significant in terms of the framework that it sets out for defence planning. Uh, But there's still a lot that we don't know. Uh, And I think particularly because this is a podcast about uh, maritime strategy, I think in this area of maritime capabilities and and what's in it for the Navy, there's still a lot of unknowns about what's going to happen. Uh, But there's three points of interest, I think, in my view, about what the DSR sets out. The first is that real consolidation of Australia's focus on its near environment, this this region that we now refer to as the Indo-Pacific. So you've got a defence strategic review that privileges the maritime, the air and the archipelagic geography of this regional neighbourhood that's consistent with this broader shift in Australia's outlook uh, and uh, the way that it sees the region uh, and its priorities within that region. So that's the first kind of key point of interest around the DSR. The second, in my view, is this shift from Defence of Australia doctrine to uh, this concept of national defence, which really emphasises a whole of government, a whole of nation approach to security and the importance of statecraft. Uh, and in a lot of ways, I think that, um, you know, it's a bit of a shame that the new government didn't decide to uh, start with a national security strategy that could try to look at how the different arms of government work in terms of Australia's national security and try to identify the gaps and the weaknesses and the silos and so on and then create a DSR. It seems to me um, that the the authors of the Defence Strategic Review really recognise that in order to be able to to maximise 
what the ADF can do, it needs to be working with other parts of uh, Australian state, particularly there's an emphasis on diplomacy. Uh, And so that kind of leads into the third point of interest, that move from a balanced force to a focused force, this idea that the ADF can't be everything uh, to everyone. Uh, It needs to prioritise the nation's most significant military risks and maximise the resources that it has and make sure that it works alongside other um, sort of areas of Australian statecraft. Thanks so much, Beck. That's a a really fantastic overview of some of the the, the key elements and takeaways from the DSR. Um, You mentioned there about uh, the maritime domain. Now, our listeners will be very keenly interested. You you talked about the fact that the DSR itself, there there is a lot that's not resolved in it. Leading up to the DSR, a lot of the focus and commentary was around capabilities and, and post the DSR, there's been a lot of discussion around capabilities, specifically army capabilities, Land 400 and strike. What is the DSR really outlined in terms of design priorities for the maritime domain? Yeah, I kind of think that the controversy over cuts to the army, which I don't think really were cuts, um, but it missed it missed a few important points. Like you know, there was there was a few points made by commentators, uh, supporters of the army around this. I think the first is that the whole point of a strategy of denial that the DSR outlines is to keep adversaries and threats away from Australian territory, uh, and it points out that the risk of direct invasion to Australia remains low anyway. So uh, land forces are less integral to Australian security than Australia's ability to operate in maritime and air domains because this is the reality of um, the strategic geography of the Indo-Pacific region. As I said before, that focus on, you know, maritime, air and archipelagic geography. So if Australia is serious about prioritising the Indo-Pacific, then the hope is that it will be less likely to become bogged down in ill-advised land wars that uh, have been fought uh, in areas beyond the Indo-Pacific. And these are the sorts of, um, I guess, operations for which tanks are required because there was this controversy around reducing the numbers of, of tanks. So I think that an important kind of takeaway from this is that the DSR is offering a strategy of denial that's defensive in nature, designed to keep threats from reaching Australia's continent in the first place, uh, and it's got this focus on the maritime and air approaches, especially in northern Australia. And if we're going to have a focused force, then that's where the priority needs to be, and that's a reflection of, of the importance of geography in strategic planning. Uh, so it's interesting. One of the interesting points, I think, from the DSR is and, and the outline of, you know, strategic this strategy of denial is this explicit focus on the development of anti-access area denial capabilities or A2AD. And the reason why I think that is interesting is because I think it's new in terms of Australia's official defence strategy and how it talks about defence strategy but also because it's a term that is most commonly associated with China's air and maritime defensive approach in the seas of East Asia. So A2AD has gained kind of prominence 
uh, in terms of China's efforts to shut out the US military in the Western Pacific area of operations. And the DSR outlines that Australia's A2AD strategy will try and combine some of these long-range capabilities designed to prevent uh, an adversary from entering an operational area, which, you know, is, is maritime and air in, in Australia's case, uh, with these shorter-range capabilities that can limit freedom of action within a particular operational area. Uh, so it's quite interesting that we've kind of taken an approach that is commonly associated with what China is trying to do defensively in its near seas. It is incredibly interesting, the consolidation of A2E to AD now as part of Australia's uh, strategy, clearly an effective strategy when it comes to uh, the archipelagic nature of the, the Indo-Pacific we touched there on on you know the the changes to uh, army capability and infantry fighting vehicles, the Land Four Hundred, which, as mentioned before, has been uh, all through the media. What did the DSR talk about in terms of the maritime domain? You know, there was a lot of discussion in the lead up to the DSR that uh, potentially the Navy would see some significant changes to its structure, um, some marquee capabilities, the Hunter class, the OPVs uh, were all being discussed. What did it end up outlining? Uh, not much, really, like in terms of detail. Uh, and you yourself, Jen, wrote uh, an excellent piece uh, in The Strategist uh, on this very topic. You know, the, the, the thing is we've got a, a defence strategic review that is prioritising maritime geography uh, in, in, in the way that it's thinking about Australia's defence and, and what needs to be prioritised in terms of force, posture and structure and capabilities and so on. Uh, but the detail is very scarce uh, about what kind of impact this strategy will have on Navy, on, on the surface fleet, as you point out, uh, on capabilities. And the centrepiece really seems to be the nuclear-powered submarines. And it strikes me that part of what the Defence Strategic Review was doing is kind of defending this procurement choice or locating the choice to, to go down the path of nuclear-powered submarines within this uh, new approach to defence. But it's not clear to me, and I think that you may have made this point as well, Jen, how and why the surface fleet needs to be reconceptualised in light of this shift to nuclear-powered submarines. Like, I suspect that the reason why that, that there's been this uh, avoidance of thinking about uh, the surface fleet is because there might not have been enough time to be able to really consider um, the makeup of the of the surface fleet, uh, given the timeframes that were given to the authors. And instead, uh, this is going to be subject to a review uh, that should be, uh, I guess, uh, I think it was the third quarter of 2023. We'll find out what kind of difficult decisions are going to be made about um, offshore patrol vessels, about whether or not that, that program is going to be um, kind of reduced in favour of corvettes. Regardless, I think that when we think about Australia's maritime domain, this immense jurisdiction, you know, 8 million square kilometres of exclusive economic zone, if we don't count Australia's claim 
off the the continent of Antarctica as well. And if you do, then it becomes over 10 million square kilometres. I mean, you've got this vast maritime area and we're talking about cutting 14 offshore patrol vessels. I mean, one of the things that I think it's easy to forget is that uh, Navy doesn't just do military operations at sea. It also has constabulary responsibilities, so, you know, helping out with um, law enforcement uh, at sea, as well as, you know, the naval diplomacy responsibilities that it has. And so what concerns me about the approach that uh, Australia is taking at the moment is that it's still quite siloed. Like you have a defence strategy that's talking about maritime, talking about naval capabilities, talking about the the importance of the maritime to Australia's defence. But then at the same time, you have a civil maritime security strategy that was released last year to very little fanfare. And that that doesn't talk at all about military or defence or the role of Navy or anything like that. It's all very disaggregated. Like we want this whole of government approach, but we're still tackling these issues in very separated and segregated ways. And I think I don't think that really is going to allow Australia to grapple with the complex and integrated and multifaceted nature of threats, whether or not they're coming from other militaries, whether they're coming from non-state actors, or whether they're coming from things like climate change or pandemics or, you know, other things. So I think going back to your original question, the maritime is at once both central to the DSR but has also been sidelined. Like we don't actually have a lot of detail and the focus is on the nuclear-powered submarines, which I, I think raises concerns about what's left over in the budget for other types of naval capabilities uh, that are required uh, and will be required in the future to defend Australia's complex maritime security interests. And government has not done a good job in explaining how nuclear-powered submarines are going to contribute to a strategy of denial because often in the discussions around nuclear-powered submarines, it's all about reach. It's about how quickly they can get to, you know, South China Sea from Western Australia. Like the conversation is about how nuclear-powered submarines can contribute to integrated deterrence uh, in seas closer to China than to Australia. So I think in order to sell it, the Australian government needs to do a much better job in explaining how these submarines are going to contribute uh, to this strategy of denial. Yeah, thanks, Beck. It is interesting. The, uh, the DSR talks about the absolute importance of the maritime domain to Australia, and yet the maritime section is quite small and, and really doesn't make any strong recommendations except for a review uh, and acquire submarines, which, which has already been announced and agreed. You talk about there in terms of that that focus on nuclear submarines, which is obviously a, a key capability, a big step change uh, for Australia, for the ADF and for the RAN. Um, but it is interesting that it, it fails to really touch on the full spectrum of effects that a Navy delivers. You know, you talk about the importance of constabulary operations, you know, and you look through the white paper in the FSP, there's a lot of discussion around, you know, the importance of sea lifts and mine countermeasures and amphibious and that whole spectrum of operations. 
Uh, one of the things that was talked about a lot in the lead up to the DSR was the uh, potential importance of uh, surface and uncrewed underwater capabilities in the REN and how that might impact structure. Um, they were mentioned uh, in the air domain. There was a lot of reference to the ghost bat, but they didn't even warrant a mention in the maritime domain. What do you think that means for the relevance of uncrewed surface and underwater capabilities to the RAN? Yeah, it's a really good point because I think, you know, we know that that Australia is pursuing a drone program. Uh, so it's not as if uncrewed vessels aren't going to be a part of RAN's kit of capabilities, if you like, uh, going into the future. I would think that Part of the answer to that question may be that we only got to see the unclassified version and there may have been more about uncrewed capabilities that we didn't see in a classified version. But, you know, I I think it just goes back to that central point that even though maritime is kind of at the heart of of this national defence strategy, Uh, that there's just very little substantive detail provided around it. I don't know that we can read too much into its absence because of that, if that makes sense. I would point you in the direction of an excellent piece by uh, Richard Dudley from UNSW uh, who talks about the fact that uncrewed vessels are not going to be a silver bullet. When we consider, especially going back to the point that I raised before, especially given uh, that navies play other roles, it's not just about military operations, it's about naval diplomacy, it's about maritime law enforcement functions as well. Um, and so his piece in Marine Policy last year is interesting because there's this debate, I guess, about the extent to which Governments might be interested in uncrewed vessels because they might offer the appearance of savings Um, and deal with some of the crucial issues around workforce, which is a real um, sort of serious issue uh, for the ADF and for the the Royal Australian Navy in particular. So there are these kinds of maybe a bit of an optimism around what uncrewed vessels will mean uh, in future, uh, but that actually uh, we shouldn't be seeing them as, you know, replacing the core functions of navies. Uh, So my view on this is we'll probably see, you know, underwater drones and and uncrewed capabilities playing a role uh, in the future, Uh, but I don't think it's going to dramatically change the nature of Australia's navy. Yes, thanks, Beth. Look, it's a a really interesting space, the uncrewed uh, capability space. uh, You know, I watched uh, the Four Corners report that uh, was on last night, on a Monday night, and Mm. there was discussion about whether they replaced uh, submarines and and, uh, certainly um, the whole spectrum of operations that are delivered by submarines. It would be challenging to see them delivered by an uncrewed capability. Uh, Absolutely. There's also that conversation about whether they, uh, in fact, can be provocative uh, and encourage an adversary to interfere with them, um, which has a whole conversation about thresholds for engagement. You know, and I just hark back to uh, the end of last year when uh, 
the Iranians um, seized two sail drones from the uh, US Navy, albeit for a short period of time. But uh, it is very interesting space. It is. And there's also a, a real legal grey area on uh, uncrewed capabilities as well that really I think um, international law of the sea is going to need to, to deal with as well. Yes, um, all really, really uh, key points. Are they warships? Do they have sovereignty? Are they vessels? Do they comply with coal rigs? Look, um, talking about that and, and the uncrewed capabilities and the, the structure of the Navy, uh, you mentioned before that the DSR's key recommendation for the maritime domain is that a review be conducted. Interestingly, it says in quarter three, not by quarter three, 23, which is a bit concerning. Ah. Uh, potentially that's just a typo. Look, what do you think will be the key considerations um, of that review? Um, and how do you see Australia's naval capabilities evolving in response to the DSR? Well, that's a tricky question. I mean, there have been, as as you mentioned before, I mean, there's been lots of speculation around cuts to numbers or planned numbers of um, offshore patrol vessels and frigates and this idea that they may be replaced by corvettes. Uh, but they were, from what I could interpret, were expectations about what would appear in the DSR and then didn't appear in the DSR. So it's difficult to know what to make of the rumours around that and where they're coming from, you know, who is actually, uh, I guess, doing this speculation like this. You know, there are, I guess there are those questions about whether uh, we need more vessels that are armed, especially in light of grey zone operations uh, that, that are happening a lot in other maritime domains. So the use of, say, militarised coast guard or the use of um, fishing vessels uh, in order to meet strategic ends. I mean, this is one of um, China's efforts at, at maritime coercion. My sense is that Australia really does need to continue to ensure that the Royal Australian Navy is equipped to assist with those constabulary functions. Uh, and that does require OPVs, more OPVs than fewer OPVs, I would suggest. Uh, but that's not necessarily uh, what the review might find. Uh, I think it's interesting as well uh, that we have a, a review that's going to be conducted by an American. Is that right? It is. It is uh, an ex-US Navy Vice Admiral, uh, Admiral Holardis. So it's interesting that Australia wasn't apparently able to find an Australian to conduct uh, this review. But I'm also curious to know whether the Admiral really has a sense of what it means for a middle-sized state like Australia with the th world's third largest exclusive economic zone to try to govern. Um, what those what 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 issues to do with size and, and geography and and wealth uh, have to do with the sorts of constraints that that places on naval capabilities. So the Australian Navy 
faces, you know, a different set of constraints from what the American Navy does. <laughs> like it's just it's a very, very different context that we're talking about. So I guess it'll be interesting to see how well the the, the person who is leading that review actually um, seeks to understand Australia's specific context and also its place in the region. Uh, a lot of what the Navy does is important in terms of building Australia's regional relationships. One of the one of the most important parts, I think, of, of Australia's maritime security strategy, not that we have a clear one, uh, is the, the Pacific Patrol Boat Program, for example. So what navies do is, is well beyond what their surface fleet capabilities are. Yes, look, I um, I certainly uh, agree with you that it's interesting that a, a US Navy ex US Navy admiral has been appointed to, to head the review. I think it I think it is pleasing that the review team uh, will include. My understanding is is Vice Admiral Stu Mayer, a, a previous fleet commander of the RAN. But it is interesting, and if you look at uh, uh, Vice Admiral Pilati's, uh background, um, he has a lot of experience with NAVSI in the US and shipbuilding industry and, and, and submarines. And I think um, that potentially provides some insights into where this review might go. Mm. But it does present the challenge in terms of does he really understand the constraints on a Navy that is, is currently 15,000? Um, you know, announced in March 22, I think the Navy is going to grow to, to approximately 20,000 by 2040. But what that means uh, for how um, we conduct maritime operations uh, and the, the real workforce constraints, uh, let alone um, the, the specifics of how you operate with such a large EUZ uh, in an area such as the Pacific, I think they're, they're really key points that you raise. I, I mean, just... On that, I mean, there's there's the the sort of the counter argument is that it can be good to have an outside perspective on these issues, you know, and somebody with with that kind of experience, uh, I think, you know, that that uh, lending that kind of expertise to this process is a good thing. I just am a bit skeptical about you know the fact that it's being led by someone who is uh, who is who is not Australian, uh, and maybe that sounds parochial of me, but you know it's it's a bit different from having out uh, people from different countries contributing to a process, but actually leading it is quite an interesting dynamic, I think. And I think it speaks to that really close relationship between Australia and the United States. And that's one of the issues, I think, in the Defence Strategic Review was, from from my perspective, was that there was a real heavy focus on the alliance, but there wasn't as much focus on other partners in the region. And I just feel like that was a missed opportunity. Yes, no, absolutely. That certainly resonates through the entirety of the DSR and hopefully that is something that the 2024 National Defence Strategy, obviously a, a key recommendation, will pick up. Um, I find it interesting too, you know, if you look at the maritime domain component of the DSR, it states very specifically, uh, and in fact I'm just going to gonna quote it now, it says, enhancing Navy's capability in long-range strike, maritime and land, air defence, and anti-submarine warfare requires the acquisition of a contemporary optimal mix of Tier 1 and Tier 2 surface combatants, consistent with a strategy of a larger number of smaller surface vessels. You know, it's, it's incredibly specific there, 
but then it recommends a review, which I which I find is interesting. I wonder uh, if they actually had a fleet mix in their minds when they were drafting the DSR, but uh, decided not to go ahead with that as a recommendation. Yeah, I mean, it's it's difficult to say because we're reading this unclassified version of a document that doesn't give all of the detail away. Uh, and there's, you know, there's certain parts of the process uh, that we're not privy to, so it's hard to speculate on whether the authors had a specific mix in in their mind. Yeah, no, thanks, Beck. It is it is very hard, and sometimes you can uh, tie yourself knots with reading uh, a lot into the words of a document which clearly has a a more classified, overarching version, as many commentators have highlighted. Turning now to what led to the DSR, you know, you talked about um, the the rise of China, and there's been a lot of commentary about not only the increasing militarization of China, but the lack of transparency in terms of the rationale for it. Do you think the review adequately addresses the potential threats posed by China's growing naval power in the region? Oh, I think that it doesn't really. I mean, on the one hand, yes. So there's a sense of urgency that underpins the DSR. There's a sense of sort of realism around just how transformed Australia's security environment has become uh, due to the rise of China's military power and due to, you know, its kind of more coercive or uh, assertive stance, particularly in the maritime domain, but also due to that kind of relative decline in the US uh, no longer being a unipolar power in the region and the US really requiring allies and partners to step up. So that's the, um, you know, what what tends to be called in in US Indo-Pacific documents as the integrated deterrence, that idea of um, it's not just the US who is going to provide security for countries uh, across Asia, but Asian allies and partners uh, need to contribute and work uh, with the United States on on deterring China um, from, you know, from particular actions. What I would have liked to have seen more of, uh, though, is an appreciation of China's kind of grey zone strategies that blur that line between civil and military. Uh, so, you know, the use of coast guards, for example. In the South China Sea and in the East China Sea, uh, we see China using Uh, coast guards, using fishing vessels, using other forms of non-military vessels to sort of harass other uh, vessels in those domains to try to assert claims to flood maritime areas. Basically, uh, these are actions of of maritime coercion. They put pressure on other states, particularly in the South China Sea. They're trying to put pressure on the kind of the, the claims that other states, smaller states make in Southeast Asia to maritime domain. Uh, And this is very difficult, I think, for militaries to cope with, that kind of blurring between civil and military. And that's part of the reason why China does them, why they're successful. But it's not so much what's written in the review because the authors of the review 
have certain parameters, you know, that there are terms of reference and they're writing, you know, based on um, on those terms of reference. It's more of an issue to do with not having a national security strategy that joins up uh, all of the different parts within Australia. If these sorts of, if China starts to use these sorts of grey zone strategies in Australia's maritime domain, uh, how is Australia going to respond to that? I mean, is it is it fit for purpose in responding to strategies that fall below the threshold of conflict? I mean, there's a deliberate reason why China uses grey zone tactics, why it does this sort of salami slicing, they call it, particularly in the South China Sea, you know, building up islands or, um, you know, changing the facts on the ground, militarising land features, creating um, pressure on smaller states by, um, you know, increasing presence in maritime domain. The reason why they do that is because, you know, falls short of provoking a response. So I guess I would like to see more appreciation more generally in defence planning but also in national security planning more generally around how to deal with that sort of issue because governments in the region who are facing it, who are at the front line of that, are finding that quite difficult. Thanks, Beck. That is uh, an incredibly challenging, a challenging area, and one that uh, that can't really be managed by just the acquisition of kinetic capabilities. It, Absolutely. It was pleasing to see the DSR talk about the importance of statecraft, but I think uh, in dealing with those grey zone threats, as you mentioned, uh, hopefully looking to the national defence strategy in twenty twenty four, we'll see a lot more on that. Beck, thanks so much. That's been a, a fantastic discussion about the, the DSR, what it says about the maritime domain, about Australia's national security, and, and some of the areas where it really doesn't say too much. Turning now to the, the future, I'm interested in seeing how you see Australia's maritime security priorities evolving over the next decade. Um, I know that you and Joanne Wallace have a book coming out this year uh, entitled Girt by Sea, Reimagining Australia's National Security. What are your kind of thoughts on those priorities? Yeah, thank you, and thanks for the uh, the plug of the book. Um, we're we're excited about the idea of that coming out into the world, and we're just working on uh, editing the manuscript at the moment. I, I mean, when I think about maritime security, this is going to sound really fundamental. But my first question is, what is maritime security? Like, what are we talking about? Because actually, there are two different definitions. It's, it's often poorly defined, but there's really two different ways of looking at it. One is we've got that really defence, conventional military focus on maritime security, the type of thing that we talk about uh, in, in the DSR and, and you know, the, the AUKUS partnership in, and nuclear-powered submarines is about addressing conventional uh, military threats uh, that might occur within the maritime domain uh, or be, you know, threats that might come across or through the seas that surround Australia. But then you have this other version of maritime security, which is much more civil, you know, talking about a lot of my colleagues in international relations, for example, who are interested in maritime security are often talking about 
um, civil maritime security challenges. They're talking about what can sometimes be termed non-traditional security challenges. They're talking about um, IUU phishing, for example. They're talking about piracy. They're talking about terrorism. They're talking about um, the smuggling of people, of arms or of drugs uh, across and through the seas. Uh, And these are the everyday kind of maritime security challenges that our neighbours are dealing with as well. Uh, So trying to prevent what some refer to as blue crime. And these are the sorts of, of maritime security challenges that I think we're going to see increase in Australia's maritime jurisdiction as sustainability becomes increasingly a, a problem, as fishes from other areas are increasingly pushed out of, of domains such as the South China Sea, and as China uh, and, it, and its fishing fleet, you know, it's, it, what's called maritime militia, uh, try to find uh, areas to fish and operate outside of those near seas of the East China Sea and the South China Sea. So we're already seeing this happening, for example, in the large number of Chinese fishing vessels around the Galapagos uh, Island. So I think, you know, as the seas become more contested and congested, and it's not just about naval vessels, it's about other forms of, of vessels, that's going to put pressure on Australia being able to defend its maritime security interests within its maritime jurisdiction. And it's not just dealing with criminals, it's not just dealing with, you know, um, military threats, it's also dealing with climate change and it's dealing with other sort of natural disasters and and also issues to do um, with pandemics. We kind of think the pandemic is over, but it's, you know, very likely that we will see new pandemics in future and they have serious, you know, they pre- they've presented serious challenges to things like supply chains for Australia. Australia is very heavily dependent on maritime trade. Uh, it also, during the pandemic, there was a 30-fold increase in reported instances of IUU fishing in Australia's North Seas. So what we see is that maritime security threats are increasingly interrelated. Um, they blur those lines between civil and military, uh, and they're increasingly complex. So you've got a, a, a sort of a worldwide event like COVID-19 uh, can affect, you know, um, tourism in Indonesia, which then affects people's livelihoods, particularly in coastal communities. And so people are then kind of forced into finding new industries and that can lead to uh, an increase in, in IUU fishing in, uh, in the seas north of Australia. So th- you can see how there are not clear boundaries actually between different types of threats. The uh, the binary between traditional and non-traditional doesn't really exist anymore. And that presents, I think, a challenge to governments. And while it's important to be thinking about geopolitics and thinking about the way that um, the environment is changing and the, and, and the sorts of different types of threats that uh, uh, China might pose to a state like Australia, it's not the only thing. 
in much the same way as we can't just be thinking about nuclear-powered submarines as a silver bullet, right, because in reality, how much is that going to actually shift the regional balance of power when we're talking about hundreds of submarines operating uh, in, in across the Indo-Pacific? So while it's, in, you know, an important capability and there are lots of advantages uh, to having nuclear-powered submarines as opposed to conventionally-powered submarines, it's not the only thing we need to be focused on. Beck, thanks so much. That's a, an absolutely fascinating discussion and something that I think is really poignant in the aftermath of the DSR, that there is just so much more to the maritime domain and maritime security and, and threats to Australia and Australia's interests um, than just the kinetic. So, so thank you so much. Really looking forward to uh, your book and Joanne Wallace's book when it comes out. Uh, unfortunately, uh, we could go on forever. That is all we have time for today. So, uh, Dr. Beck Strading, thank you so much for joining us here on the Saltwater Strategist for what is an absolutely fascinating conversation. Thanks so much for having me, Jen. We would like to extend our sincerest thanks to Dr. Beck Strading for joining us today and sharing her invaluable insights into the impacts of Australia's recent Defence Strategic Review on the maritime domain. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating, reviewing and following the Saltwater Strategist wherever you get your podcasts. You can find out more on the Australian Naval Institute website, navalinstitute.com.au, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or sign up to our weekly newsletter via our website. If you're interested in general maritime affairs, why not consider joining the Australian Naval Institute to get special access to timely content and events relating to maritime affairs. A big thank you to our DSR episode sponsor, Adroita, whose support is vital to bring you these timely and important discussions on maritime security. I'm Jen Parker. Thanks for listening. 